Welcome to Tigers in 20, a Go Tigers 247 audio podcast. Your one-stop shop for all things University of Memphis Tigers athletics. Here are your hosts, founder of Go Tigers 247, Brooks Hansen, and lead writer for Go Tigers 247, Christian Fowler. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode. I'm your host, Christian Fowler, and joining me, as always, is Go Tigers 247 founder, Brooks Hansen. And Brooks, it feels like every weekend now in Memphis, there's a big event happening following last weekend's AAC championship game, Memphis football defeats Cincinnati. We come into this Saturday, a week later, uh, and the Memphis basketball team travels up to Knoxville and goes and knocks off a top 20 team in Tennessee, now ranked number 11 in the AP poll uh, 9-1 and one on the season and really hitting their stride. Brooks, from watching that game, what are what are just the overall takeaways from that game and, and what this team was able to accomplish? Well, we called it last week. We, you know, we said this is going to be a defensive game. Both Tennessee and Memphis, if you look at their defensive efficiency and the way that they hold teams uh, to very few points. Uh, my phone is dying in case you heard that in the background. Uh it was it was what we thought it would be. And, you know, I think that what Memphis was able to do to go into Tennessee, uh, into Thompson Bowling Arena, score only five points in the first 12 minutes of that game, and to come out with a win, uh, it shows how resilient this team. I, I thought after the UAB comeback that, that it showed some resiliency. But I honestly – UAB Bartow Arena is not Thompson Bowling Arena. Uh, there's 21,000 fans in Thompson Bowling versus maybe 5,000 in Bartow. And for them to be able to come back from being down big early and do what they did without here, – here's what's crazy. You think about your big, your big players. You've got uh, Boogie Ellis going for three points. You've got Precious Achua – going for eight so boogie and precious go for a total of 11 points memphis scores only five points in the first 12 minutes if you had told me that i would have told you that memphis got blown out by 20 so for them to come out with a win is super impressive yeah, one hundred percent. And they're I mean, they're also without James Wiseman and Lester Quinones, who are two starters on this team and two of the best players on this team. Uh and I think that speaks volumes about what they've been able to do. Uh this is one that a lot of people pointed to and said that's gonna be a loss without James Wiseman. So for them to come out shorthanded uh and take care of business on the road, I mean the atmosphere when you just and when you look at it was insane. I mean the Tennessee fans were ready to go. Uh, like we figured, I mean, we knew they were going to be hyped up after, especially after last year, uh, the regional rivalry that this game is in and, in and of itself is going to be hype regardless. But when you throw in what happened last year um, and kind of all the back and forth on Twitter between players and fans, and, and we knew this atmosphere was going to be crazy. I'm assuming that the coaching staff did a very good job of preparing Memphis for this as, as well as they could. Uh, because they really handled it well after those first few minutes. Because like you said, scoring five points in 12 minutes is rough. Uh, the, most teams, I feel like, would, would, would kind of bow out after that. I mean, when you when you literally cannot get anything to fall, can't do anything offensively, uh, it's hard to, to keep putting up shots. But they did. 
the defense was incredible once again, and that's the, that's the best thing about this team. Defense travels, and uh, they've proved that, you know, whether it's the two road games that they've had or the neutral site games, their defense has traveled. This defense has taken a big step from where it was last year. I think we expected that. Don't know if we expected it this early in the season. Uh, the coaching staff has done a tremendous job. We know that how much they preach def- defense, and uh, it's translated. It's translated quickly with a lot of young guys. Um, I, I said this, I think, last week or two weeks ago on the podcast. You see these other freshman-laden teams, whether it's Duke or Kentucky, dropping very winnable games. And Memphis hasn't done that. The only team they've lost to is Oregon, uh, who's who's one of the best teams in the country right now. I think they're up to number eight in the AP Top 25, so that's the only loss on the season. Of taking taking care of business everywhere else, uh, Penny Hardaway gets his first top twenty five win, uh, and it's fitting that it's against Rick Barnes and uh, and Tennessee program uh, as far back as this rivalry goes. So overall, uh, I think it was I don't want to say it was a coming out party for this team because everyone's expected them to be good, but they kind of reintroduced themselves to to the country. I feel like because. Since James Wiseman's out, not a lot of people are talking about Memphis, and they kind of they kind of stepped back onto that national scene and and said, no, we don't we don't need James Wise need James Wiseman to be one of the best teams in the country. So overall, a huge weekend for Memphis, another huge weekend for Memphis, and uh, the biggest win in a while for the basketball team. Well, it was a, it was a coming out party for a certain group of Memphis's players, the unheralded guards you know Damian Ball came in he was one of the most unheralded recruits in that recruiting class maybe only in front of Malcolm Dandridge in terms of the amount of attention they were getting and then you've got Tyler Harris and Alex Lomax both having massive games between the three of them they combined for 29 of Memphis's 51 points and they combined for 23 of Memphis's 49 uh, rebounds Massive contributions from those three guards, Damian, Alex, and Tyler. Without those three, Memphis does not win that game. Yeah, I mean, and we've been critical of Tyler at points, uh, me and you have, but he has he's really taken it to the next level with, with the way that he stepped up with the shot selection. I think he's shooting 43 or 44% from three right now. Last year as a freshman, he shot 30. Uh, so he's... He's definitely made some improvements, and I, like I said, I know we've been critical on him at certain points when he deserves it, but obviously deserves a lot of praise for the way that he's played recently and some of the really, really big shots that he was able to knock down on Saturday. Alex Lomax, once again, is just, the confidence is is off off the charts for him. He's playing at a completely different level. Um, I think Penny has, has allowed him to run the show and he's fed off of that and and really, really turned into the player that a lot of people thought he could be coming into college and, and the player that he was in high school. Uh, and he's kind of brought those traits over this year and, and, and been that competitor, the hustle guy, um, the floor general. He's, he's hit a lot more shots than people expected him to. He's been able to get down low. Alex has been able to do a lot, a lot of everything. I mean, he's been able to, to do everything for this team I think he's the guy that they're relying on and leaning on with James Wiseman out. He's become the leader of this team as only a sophomore, and it's impressive to watch. And then um, before I kick it back over to you, Brooks, I I do want to talk about Precious Achiwa a little bit because the past couple games he hasn't had big scoring totals, but he has kind of set the tone for Memphis with his aggressiveness and the way that he plays down low. He had 14 rebounds 
against Tennessee, and he, like I said, he did he didn't score at a high clip, only eight points, wasn't a big factor on offense, but he set the tone down low, whether it was against John Fulkerson or Eves Ponds, <clears throat> and uh and and was really able to impact the game in multiple other ways, which is exactly what he get, did against NC State. He didn't have a great scoring game against NC State, but he impacted the game on the defensive end and on the glass, and I think that's that's what you need from him. If he's not on scoring the basketball, he has to be he has to be making an impact, and and he's really been able to do that over the past couple games. Well, the final thing I want to hit on, it kind of goes back to what you were just talking about on Tyler Harris. Not only has Tyler Harris been extremely efficient and effective when he's been in the game, one of the things that they're doing this year with Tyler is they're finding ways to limit his liabilities. So Tyler Harris, there's no no hiding it. He's the smallest guy on the floor almost any given night. You know, last year there were there were moments where it was very obvious that he was a defensive liability. Uh, you know, depending upon the matchup. This year, and and in that game on Saturday against Tennessee, Memphis's staff had that team extremely prepared, and I think you see why Memphis is number three overall in terms of effective field goal defense right now, according to Ken Palm. Memphis is switching everything. They, they literally switch every single screen, every pick-and-roll situation they're, they're switching, even whenever it comes to Tyler Harris. But what you see this year is that they are much more prepared to be able to allow their other players to identify when Tyler is switched on a man that's a mismatch, and they, they bring help side defense. They will rotate. Uh, and allow other guys to come off of their man to switch with Tyler and get him into a more favorable matchup. It's, it seems like almost any time Tyler is switched into a matchup that's not favorable at all, they very quickly correct it. Um, and you can watch that on film. I wish we could do a film room like you guys do with football, and, and I could show you some instances where they, they do it. But it's very, very obvious that they are – uh, being very intentional about making sure that Tyler is is being put in positions where he's not um, taken advantage of on the defensive end. The other thing is Memphis is now up to number four overall in terms of defensive block percentage. That's tremendous, and they're doing that without James Wiseman, who is going to be one of the most elite shot blockers in the country. That's that's impressive. Yeah, and before we move on, one last thing. The, okay, so I think we first talked about this game maybe a month or so ago uh, when we were looking at when James Wiseman was going to be out, what games he, were gonna, he was going to miss. And we said that the backcourt was going to decide this game. And we said that because Lamonte Turner and Jordan Bowden are two of you know the most experienced guards in the country. They're both very, very talented players. Uh, they've really helped lead Tennessee this season, and Tennessee's been better this year than people expected because of those two players. And the way that Memphis was able to shut them down, I did I didn't see it coming. I mean, I knew obviously knew that Damian and Alex are are very good defensive players, but the game plan that that Penny Hardaway drew up on on the backcourt of Tennessee shows me once again because I I mean I've been saying this since last year that Penny Hardaway is a much better coach than he's he's going to get credit for at this point in his career uh, because when you look at at having to game plan against those guys with with the young with the young players that Memphis has 
and you're having a game plan against against guys that have been in the system for three or four years and understand everything that Rick Barnes wants to do, uh, and they're able to shut them down. I think they held them to what, a combined five or seven points with like a 15% field goal percentage between the two of them. Uh, so very impressive performance to be able to shut those two guys down. Well, let's just call it what it is. The backcourt matchup did decide the outcome of this game. Memphis's backcourt was simply better, and they limited UT's veteran guards to basically nothing. You know, between Turner and Bowden, uh, they were one of 11 from three. Uh, they combined for 10 total points. They were not good. They had four turnovers between the two of them. Uh, you know, and, and Memphis had, they finished the game with 17 turnovers. Uh, the majority of them came from Memphis's backcourt. You know, Tyler Harris, Alex Lomax, Damian Ball, Boogie Ellis, uh, those guys combined for nine turnovers. If they limit those, it's not even, it's not even a four point game. You know, it's, it's even, it's a double digit win for Memphis. So, if Memphis's guards had been even better, this would have been a blowout. In, in terms of you know you, you're talking about fifty one forty seven, you know if it's fifty eight forty seven, that's a blowout. <laughs> so you know because every point in this one mattered, uh, but the backcourt is what made the difference. So Christian, uh, up next, Memphis has a little bit of a slowdown in terms of the schedule. Uh, they've you know they've got. Three games over the next three weeks. Uh, back in the day, this is before you covered the Tigers, but back in the day, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say his name, but John Calipari, he used to call this stretch around the Christmas break uh, Camp Cal because he would give the players a little bit of time off, but then he would keep them in Memphis. They would go like crazy and get a lot better in their time on campus. Memphis has Jackson State, then they've got New Orleans and Tulane. All of those games, the 21st, 28th, and 30th, and then they've got the break up until the Georgia game. You know, obviously with Lester Quinones coming back at any point between now and UGA, it could be um, this week, it could be next. Uh, they were supposed to find out more on Monday of this week. Have not heard anything official yet on that, whether or not he's been cleared to practice. Um, I would fully expect for him to play against New Orleans from what I've been told, if things are optimistic and him getting back into action on the practice floor uh, is optimistic. But all three of those games, obviously very, very winnable games. You just want to prepare between now and the fourth against Georgia, that matchup against uh, Anthony Edwards, because here's the thing, they've got two two really, really good players in Rayshon Hammonds and Anthony Edwards. And anytime you've got two guys that are very good, you can beat anybody on any given night. Um, so Memphis obviously wants to go into that game at home on CBS with Anthony Edwards coming into the FedEx Forum. They want to they win that game, hands down. It also gives you momentum going on the road in that final game without James Wiseman against Wichita State on the ninth. So that's a, that's the big game coming up. Those three games, it's all about staying healthy, kind of getting into a groove, implementing what you're learning in practice, 
um, since you're only having a game a week essentially over the next you know two and a half weeks. Any takeaways from you? Well, I mean, obviously, when we first looked at this stretch, uh, we knew there was going to be some games that were difficult for Memphis to handle without James Wiseman. So far, perfect through that stretch. Uh, I think there's only two games, the Georgia and the Wichita State game, that Memphis could potentially drop without James Wiseman, uh, like you said with Anthony Edwards and, and what Georgia brought in in that in that 2019 class. They are a dangerous team. Uh, they haven't played up to their potential in some games, but then other games you've seen Anthony Edwards be the player that that he is, which is a potential number one overall pick, just like James Wiseman. So I think that's going to be a, a very interesting game. Unfortunately, we won't get to see both of them in that game. Uh, but that's that's another game like like Tennessee where Memphis's backcourt will have to play very well uh, with Rayshon Hammonds. They'll have to be physical down low. Um, and then when you look at Wichita State, uh, that they've also been rolling up to this point this year. I think they're nine and one as well uh, in the American. So that's not going to be an easy game. Uh, and that that is a road game. That first Wichita State is a road game, correct? Yes. So so going on the road uh, to play your. You know that's your first road conference game. That's that's not going to be easy. That's a difficult game, um, but I mean I think even if I, I don't think they drop both of those. Even if they drop both of those, they're still in good position. Uh, you get James Wiseman back going into the bulk of the conference schedule. So the way that Memphis Memphis has handled themselves through adversity this year has been massive. Because I mean to be nine and one uh, without two of your starters and to be sitting at this point in the season uh, right outside of the top ten, uh, I think is is with everything that has happened, as good as this could be for Memphis right now. Here's the crazy thing, Christian. If you rewind back to the beginning of that 12-game, no James Wiseman stretch, it started with Alcorn State. That Those 12 games, you listen to a lot of people, a lot of media, a lot of fans. The general consensus was that if Memphis finishes that 12-game stretch at, say, Twelve and I mean a seven and five in that stretch, or even maybe an eight and four. That's extremely optimistic. Nine and three, something went extremely well. You know, anything better than that? That's like holy crap! What's going on? That was before Memphis lost Lester. So Memphis is now in a position where they're they're looking at a three-game stretch that you can pretty much almost ink into the win column. And now you've only got two games of that 12-game stretch where they're even going to be remotely close according to predictions. So, you know, even if you split that, Memphis is looking at you know an 11 and 1 record, possibly 12 and 0 record without James Wiseman for all of those 12 games and Lester Quinones for the you know vast majority of them. I don't I don't know how you can even look at that post James Wiseman and not think that Memphis has a chance to not only run the table but to be the team that Penny Hardaway called them to be before the season even started. At that point to me when they get James Wiseman back, if this team continues to progress, if they begin dominating teams and kind of putting the foot down on the throats of some of these lesser teams, that's when you start to think this team could actually do what Penny Hardaway said that he wanted to do. 
that's when you start to dream because this team in that 12-game stretch outperformed your expectations. They they basically put you in a position where you say, this is like a dream scenario. Memphis going 12-0 and without James Wiseman and Lester Quinones? That's like a dream. And you look up and now you're thinking, hmm, March 8th, final game at Houston. Could Memphis be sitting with one loss looking at a one seed? Because if you're a one seed and your matchup is favorable in the NCAA tournament, all it takes is getting a little bit hot. And and that is what Penny Hardaway wanted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's I think it's a question worth being asked at this point because we, I mean, all we can go off of is what we've seen from James Wiseman in the games that he played, what we saw from Lester in the games he played, and then what this team has done and progressed in that time. And when you look at those things, Memphis is a legitimate national championship contender when James Wiseman comes back. And I think at this point, after Saturday, there's not too many people that would disagree with that uh, because when it's just it's facts at this point. Uh, to play that well with, with what they've been given and to be at this point, I think it speaks for itself. But, Brooks, we've gone uh, <laughs> like 22 minutes on basketball right now, so we are going to – We're like – we went into this like, yeah, it's not going to be a long <laughs> yeah, episode. Yeah, that's exactly – It's going to be short. Exactly what we said going into it is, oh, we don't have – That's what Tennessee does. That's what – when you t- when you start talking Tennessee versus Memphis, you just get swept up into it. There's, there's no helping it. It's just going to happen. So, yeah, let's wrap it up. Um, one last thing I do want to say, as we get closer to the Georgia matchup, please listen, uh, because I'm going to do a full breakdown of Anthony Edwards and I'm, I'm going to kind of mock the way that some of these, uh, mock drafts have pushed Anthony Edwards up to the number one spot when James Wiseman hasn't played a single game over that period. It's pretty laughable to me. Uh, but anyway, we'll do that closer to that Georgia game, preview that, give you a sense of what Anthony Edwards is, what he isn't, what he's done so far to kind of justify that and, and why I think it's absurd uh, to penalize James Wiseman for sitting out. All right, Christian, switching gears from basketball now to football. Tons going on with football. Obviously, Mike Norvell leaving. We've covered that as much as humanly possible. Ryan Silverfield being named. Uh, the new Tigers head coach, and all of the coaching changes are now starting to kind of roll downhill with uh, Norvell naming his staff at FSU. Silverfield now having a chance to try to figure out exactly where he's going to slot guys uh, as they prepare for the Cotton Bowl against Penn State. So, Christian, you've been at those practices since they started back on Sunday. What are some of those coaching changes that have started to come out uh, and what do you expect to see on the horizon over the next two weeks or so? Uh, so the first thing was Adam Fuller going to Florida State, which happened later last week. Um, but Fuller wanted to coach in the bowl game. It was something that he uh, he said he wanted to do was coach the bowl game. Unfortunately, it didn't end up working out. Um, I, I think we said it with Norvell. It's just so difficult. with If the early signing period wasn't a thing, uh, I think Norvell and Fuller would be coaching uh, this game. But with, with the way that it is set up now with the early signing period and how important it is uh, to build a class at the forefront of December rather than mid-February, uh, it changes the la- it obviously changes the landscape of, of football and recruiting, but it changes the landscape of when coaches leave 
Um, and I think that's obviously a big thing for Memphis as well with, with having Coach Silverfield and retaining him. So uh, Fuller will not be coaching in the bowl game. Um, Ryan Silverfield named Kevin Clune, who's been the linebackers coach this year, as the interim defensive coordinator for the game. Uh, he will be calling the plays. He has had two stints as a defensive coordinator recently. He was at Oregon State for two years before coming to Memphis, and he was at Utah State as a defensive coordinator for the season before that. So he does have experience. Uh, he's been in this system for two years now, or he's been with Memphis for two years now. Uh, he came in as a as a defensive analyst, a, a defensive quality control guy last year, and then was promoted to linebackers coach. So he's somebody that's been here for a couple of years, is familiar with the with the personnel, with the group of players, and uh, and he will. I think he'll do fine. I mean, obviously, when you look at just having the having to control one game, I think you I think you should be fine there. He doesn't switch anything up, does he? No, no, no. There's not going to be any any crazy scheme switches or anything like that. And that's why I say it doesn't really make that much of a difference because. It's the same personnel. It's going to be the same play calls. It's going to be the same you've seen all year. It's just going to be a different – they're going to be called by a different person, and that's really it. Um, Also, Silverfield spoke very, very highly of Kevin Johns, who came in last year as the offensive coordinator. Obviously didn't get to call plays under Coach Norvell, but will be calling plays in the bowl game. Uh, And from what Silverfield said, Silverfield said that Johns will be in Memphis for a long time. So it sounds like Memphis will retain Kevin Johns. Uh, which which I think is a good move for them because with Silverfield we know that he's more than likely not going to call plays. Um, he could. I'm not saying he won't. He could. But I mean, with Kevin Johns, a guy that's been around some very very high powered offenses in uh, Texas Tech, Western Kentucky, or Western Michigan, and now Memphis, uh, he's he's seen a lot of big time playmakers. A lot of he's been under a lot of good head coaches. When you look at Norvell and Cliff Kingsbury. And some of the other coaches that he's been under, so I think Silverfield has a lot of confidence in him, um, and we'll really get to see the way that he kind of varies it up and kind of switches it up in the bowl game. Kind of the same thing as on the defensive side of the ball. There's not going to be some massive scheme switch, but it, we'll get to see the way that he kind of weaves in plays and the way that he wants to go about setting up a defense. So I think even though it will be the same personnel and the same set of plays and the same scheme. Uh, I think the way that he mixes everything up will be very interesting to watch. So any other guys that you know for sure are headed? I know Carlos Lachlan, uh, Coach Locke, as most people know him, who is the director of high school relations, is actually headed to Florida State in the same position. Any other movement outside of those guys that you mentioned and Coach Locke? Now, outside of that, it would be nothing but theory at this point. Um, and I, I don't I don't have too much other than that. Now, I don't want to – I don't want to go out and say that someone's going to leave that I feel like it's going to leave and it not happen. So there's nothing there's nothing else concrete and I think that's what this set is set up to be. Uh this is an audition for a lot of those guys and and I don't think Silverfield wants to make any changes until after the Cotton Bowl. Um and obviously really the only changes I think that could come in between is if Norvell comes in and gets and gets a couple of guys and doesn't allow them to coach or the Florida State doesn't allow them to coach in the bowl game. I think that's the only way we see any more change between now and the Cotton Bowl? All right, so big day on Wednesday this week. We're recording this on Tuesday night, but this will be published on Wednesday. Early signing day starts tomorrow on Wednesday when this will be published. What do we expect? What's it mean for the Tigers? First off, let me say before I kick it to you, pretty unbelievable uh, I've been watching the transfer portal. You know, have people watching for me. Nothing 
been waiting to see if any Memphis commits were going to decommit. Now, I do think that there's a possibility that Kobe Wilson with that new Georgia offer could flip. Uh, I've seen some people kind of freaking out because he removed all of the Memphis stuff off of his Twitter. Sometimes means something, sometimes doesn't. But that Georgia offer obviously will hold a lot of water uh, for guys, especially given that it's in-state for him. Uh, but pretty unbelievable to see no transfers and no decommitments with Ryan Silverfield being named head coach. So tomorrow, Wednesday, National Signing Day, the early signing period, what do you expect to see, Christian? So I want to start with what you were mentioning about Kobe Wilson because I, I do think that he's going to end up being gone, and I think he's going to be the only – that's the only bit of attrition that we've seen so far from Ryan Silverfield will be that, and that's not of his doing. It's because, I mean, a, an SEC school came in, his home home state school came in and offered the day before the early signing period. Yeah, so. if Mike Norvell is at Memphis – if Mike Norvell's still at Memphis – Kobe Wilson is still gone. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is just kind of that perfect storm scenario where Georgia uh, needed more numbers. They needed more players to fit in, and they, and they went to somebody that was in-state and committed to Memphis, and that's just hard to turn down for a guy like that. Um, but other than that, I have not heard anything to suggest that any of the other guys that are currently committed in the 2020 class will not be signing on uh, on Wednesday, which is unbelievably impressive that – from just from from two weeks ago, uh, because obviously there's going to be some panic when when a head coach leaves. So it, when you have that, and there's kind of uncertainty for all these guys, Ryan Silverfield was able to hold everything together, and that is very very difficult to do. Typically, as soon as a head coach leaves, you see a flurry of decommitments before before an interim coach's name, before a head coach's name. There's usually guys that leave. And I think that says a ton about the staff as a whole and what the relationships that they were able to build. And I think it also says a lot about Ryan Silverfield and the confidence that all these commits had in him to stay. So, like I said, I think Kobe Wilson will ultimately be gone. I think that's just too hard to turn down. But everyone else, and I've talked to all of them except one or two, uh, have told me that they are signing. They're planning to sign on Wednesday. So, I think everyone sticks other than Kobe Wilson, and there could be a surprise or two. I've heard a couple of things uh, suggesting that they could pull a couple of guys out of the hat, uh, but a question that I've gotten a lot that I do want to hit on here because I think it's very important is the numbers are going to be tight with all the uh, the scholarships given the walk-ons, with the blue shirts, with, with the way that Norvell has brought in guys late every year when you look at guys like Carlito Gonzalez, Coyote Oladelli, uh, Jonathan Wilson. I mean, it feels like every year Memphis has a couple of guys that, that trickle in. Asa Martin's another guy that kind of trickled in late. So there's not a ton of scholarships open right now. They're at 13 commits. Uh, I believe they'll sign anywhere from 13 to 15 tomorrow. Uh, probably probably at 13 to 14 uh, tomorrow on Wednesday. And then after that, I don't think you have many more spots open. I don't think this class can go to 20. I think 16 to 19, and they would have to get very, very creative to get 19 or 20. So I think it's going to be a very small class. This is the vast majority of what you're going to have right here. Um, so fortunately, they've been able to lock up nearly everybody, and I think that that's huge. I mean, that's what this early signing period is for, is to get those guys uh, to get those guys in and to get those signatures and to be over with and to move on to what you have next. So 
fortunately for the staff, there won't be much left after this. They can target in on a few guys, maybe two or three, four guys that they really want and go lock in on them and, and try to get them on national signing day. But the majority of the class will be locked down on Wednesday. All right, so Christian, before we do anything else, you're the man whenever it comes to kind of identifying some of these prospects. You've done it every year that you've worked with us. You've kind of had a gauge on what players were going to be big impact guys. You called it last year. I'm going to let you call it again. I want you to go maybe the most talented right off the bat guy and then the guy that maybe is like a, a sleeper, a sneaky guy that – might be the most underrated guy that could come in and really make an impact for Memphis right away in this early signing period. Well, I've got to go twofold with the most talented because I think Kendarius Taylor, as his ranking shows, is the most talented. But uh, he is actually coming off of – so this is what happened with Kendarius this year, and this this is this is horrible. Uh, so at Colin, he I think in the second or third game, he breaks his foot in five different places, sits for two weeks – comes back and plays, tears his ACL, MCL, and meniscus. Mm. And and that is difficult to come back from. I mean, it's nine-month recovery time. Uh, so he has he has a long way to go still on that. He said he won't be able to make his debut as far as practice goes until fall camp starts. So he'll miss all spring, all summer, uh, and doing rehabbing and stuff. And, and that's not a, an easy injury to come off of. Fortunately, he will be at Memphis for the majority of this rehab instead of community college because obviously Division One program has a lot better rehab and facilities and stuff like that. So uh, I think he is the most talented player, and it's just if he can come off of that knee injury um, even <clears throat> at 80%, which is difficult coming right off of a knee injury, I think he makes an immediate impact. When you look at Antonio Gibson leaving, Kadarian Jones leaving, DeMonte could leave and go to the NFL draft. Um, Memphis, outside of them, doesn't have a ton of big targets. When you look at, you know, Calvin Olsen, Taj Washington, uh, Pop Williams, if he decides to come back, there are a lot of 5'8 to 5'10 guys. Kendarius at 6'2. Um, if you ask anybody in the city of Memphis, he's one of the best wide receivers to ever play high school football here. So I think he makes an immediate impact if he comes off of that knee injury okay. Also, Keelan Brown. I, I That is extremely impressive to keep him committed. I mean, there's... Been plenty of schools coming after him. Uh, one of the as as far as accomplishments go, one of the most prolific players in the state of Louisiana, which is a talent rich state that turns out a ton of talent every year. Um, and he he's an interesting prospect um, because when you look at what Memphis has done, and we don't, I mean, I don't think Memphis' offense is going to look much different under Silverfield, obviously. Um, but really, what we can take is our sample size from Norvell. And we've never really seen Norvell, Norvell's offense have a running quarterback in it. And like I said, there definitely are going to be some differences between him and Silverfields, but they, they will probably look a lot of the same. And I'm excited to see what a dual-threat quarterback looks like in that. Markevion Quinn's a dual-threat quarterback. Uh, not I don't think he's quite as talented as Keelan Brown. Uh, so that's what I'm excited about. I think that could be a lot of fun to watch. I know he's a kid with a chip on his shoulder because a lot of those dual-threat quarterbacks get told that they can't throw the ball. Uh, and so that's something that he's going to try to try to prove coming out of the gate. So I think that that's the two most talented players. I know I went into a lot of detail there, <clears throat> but the guy that I think is a little bit lower ranked that makes a big impact is Marcall Jones. 
I don't understand why he's so low ranked. I mean, this dude set the record for receiving yards in a season for high school football in Georgia. I mean, outside of Florida, Texas, and California, Georgia is probably the best state as far as high school football talent goes. And he had 2,072 receiving yards last year, set the set the state record. And he is a mid-level three-star prospect. He's not huge, 5'10", 175 pounds, not a big guy, but uh, obviously a playmaker. And Warner Robins, like, you would think, okay, maybe it's a 1A, 2A school. Warner Robins is one of the better schools in Georgia. Uh, Marquez Callaway, who's at Tennessee, is from Warner Warner Robins. Uh, Jake Fromm, who's at, at Georgia or about to leave Georgia, is from Warner Robins. Uh, and there's a ton of other talent around the country that came from that high school. So I think he's somebody that got overlooked throughout the process because he's not the biggest, he's not the fastest, uh, but he clearly understands how to play the receiver position, how to catch the ball, uh, made a ton of big plays in his four years at Warner Robins, and I think he's somebody that catches on quickly and becomes a big-time playmaker. Well, he fits the mold of what Memphis gets in those playmakers that, uh, you know, kind of gadget-style players that Memphis finds, just finds ways to get the ball and go out there and make plays. Um, uh, To me, one of the questions I had for you uh, you talk about the lack of size at that receiver position. Kobe Webster from Texas High in Texarkana, Texas. He's one of the only guys that Memphis has committed at that skill position. He's 6'1", 180 with that type of size that you're talking about. What, he's the main guy that I had a question about. What do you see from him? What's he bringing to the table? How long is it going to take for him to kind of come in and find his role at Memphis? Well, I think he's a lot like Kadarian Jones. When you look at what Kadarian brings to the table or brought to the table, he'll have one more game at Memphis, obviously. But kind of that possession receiver that plays over the middle of the field doesn't typically stretch the field too much, but gives you a guy that'll run those slants, that'll run those deep ends, that'll run those hitches and those uh, back shoulder throws. That's a lot of what I've seen from Kobe Webster. Um and they're kind of in the same mold, that like 6'1", 180, 190, they're, they're both about the same size. So that's what I see from him is, is not necessarily being the deep threat guy because that's why you have Markel Jones and Kai Matthew, who's a, a freaking speed demon. Kai Matthew is ridiculously fast. Um, but you want those guys as well, those possession receivers who can convert that third and six, that third and seven, uh, who can consistently move the chains when you're not hitting the the deep down the field shot. So that that's the kind of player I see from from Kobe Webster is, is being a guy who consistently moves the chains, who can use his size uh, and use his body position into to, to make plays over the middle of the field. Well, to be 6'1", 180, 185, I'm not sure what he's at exactly right now. Uh, because the last update on this profile was uh, four months ago. I'm sitting here looking at it right now. But you know, to be that size and to run a 4.540 and to bench press over 300 pounds for your one rep max, he's big, he's strong, he's fast. <laughs> you know, To me, I, just looking at his film, looking at his measurables, I see a guy that Memphis, it's like one of those gems that they find uh, and just find ways to turn them into kind of an unheralded prospect into a big-time playmaker. So, uh, Christian, any other things that you want to point out about signing day? Obviously, stay tuned to Go Tigers 247. Christian's got uh, a ton of content coming out, interviews with basically any player that's going to sign with Memphis uh, over the next couple days. But, Christian, anything else you want to say about signing day? 
No, I mean, just, just to kind of leave it off on this note, I mean, this is, as far as rankings go, uh, and average recruit rankings, this is one of the best classes in school history. Actually, I think it is the best school, the best class in school history. So like I just did with uh, with Markel Jones and, and like we did with Kobe Webster, I could honestly go through with any of these guys and, and, and tell you why I think that they'll be big time players at Memphis because that is the level of prospect that's being commit or being recruited here now. Uh, it, it's different than a couple of years ago when it's like seven or eight guys that you think can make an impact and the rest, you know, may just fizzle out. Now, I mean, I, I see a lot of these guys making an impact, maybe not immediately, but you don't necessarily, when you're a, a developed program, want true freshmen making an impact every year. Uh, you want to be able to redshirt those guys and let those guys sit in the system. And that's what we've seen with this program. That is where this program is at. I mean, last year was one of the best classes in school history as well. And barely any true freshman got on the field because of the depth at every position. And that is what it takes to build uh, one of these consistent top 25 programs. And that's what that's what Justin Fuente helped do. That's what Mike Norvell helped do. And that's what Ryan Silverfield is in line for, is to be the next guy to carry on this tradition of, of turning Memphis into one of the best football programs in the country. And with what, when you look at recruiting, depth chart, what they have, uh, coaching staff, everything. I mean, Memphis is Memphis is at a different level than they've ever been. So, uh, soak it up tomorrow. Be excited. I mean, I, when when I before I started doing this, I've always been a big fan of signing day. Signing day is a lot of fun. Uh, you get to see the future of the program. So, tune in to what we got. Like Brooks said, I think we've got six to eight articles tomorrow with with guys that are uh, that will be signing, and we'll also have the headquarters article. That will kind of recap who signed that day. So stay tuned to the site. Uh, it, it should be a fun day. Uh, and just, once again, celebrate the program. It's at, a, it's at a different level than it's ever been. Well, just to, to kind of reiterate what you said in terms of where this stands in the history of Memphis recruiting, two of the guys signing in 2020 fall in the top 28 of Memphis's all-time highest-ranked recruits in history. Uh, and that would be Kondarius Taylor and Keelan Brown, the two guys that you mentioned as most talented within this class. And there are, like you said, guys that fell in that 2019 class that, that while they may have played, didn't necessarily make a massive impact right away. Uh, it just goes to show you how much it takes uh, in, in order to develop. I mean, Obina Ezi was the number four overall rated recruit in the history of Memphis recruiting. And he's just now this year starting to find his role. Um, and he was a 2017 guy. Um, so it takes time. It, it takes some development. These guys, even though they are highly ta- talented, highly touted. Little tongue twister Tongue tied. Yeah. Cole Mashburn, number 15 overall. Um, Nick Robinson, who transferred. He's no longer there. Jaleel Clemens, a guy that you loved, uh, number 19 overall for Memphis uh, as a part of the 2019 class. So you see how these guys that we mentioned come in and they end up making up the roster of guys that you you hear their name called making plays on Saturdays for Memphis. So it's it's fun to pay attention to. It's fun to dream about how they can make an impact. Once the dust settles after early signing day, We'll recap kind of what to expect from Memphis and Ryan Silverfield heading into the late signing period. Once we kind of have an idea of how many guys signed, how many spots are going to be there, 
and how many guys they might be looking to sign in that late late period. So, Christian, I, th- I think we about murdered this thing. I mean, we're we're looking at now forty minutes, minutes plus. This is crazy. We thought this was going to be a short episode. Uh, every Anything time, else? every single time I say that it's going to be a short episode, it ends up being like this. We g- y'all got double time, and it's is mainly because UT basketball versus Memphis basketball and early signing day. It's just exciting. Uh, there's a lot going on right now. So, Christian, I think it's time to wrap it. You got anything else? I'm all good. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Tigers in 20. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to leave a comment and a rating wherever you download your podcasts. If you are interested in daily content all about the University of Memphis athletic program, please hop over to www.gotigers247.com. Articles are uploaded daily, and you can join the Go Tigers 247 family by signing up for the VIP membership for even more behind-the-scenes information. 